Welcome to the Sunday Sermon, with me, content editor David Jameson. Like good old-fashioned Scottish Presbyterians, I'll actually be holding two sermons every Sunday, but unlike the Church Fathers, I'm keeping one of those for Patreon. For, you might say, the elect. You can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash contoscott to hear the second half of this pod. Someone needs to pay for the leaky roof at the gable end. This week I'd like to reflect on the new UK government's fiscal event, a budgetary statement by the new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, which will see taxes slashed, principally to the benefit of the highest earners and most wealthy. The top rate of income tax is gone, planned rises in business taxes have been scrapped, and the cap on bankers' bonuses will be lifted. Many are asking why this is happening, particularly after two Conservative administrations those of Theresa May and Boris Johnson, which have seemed to involve something of a wandering away from neoliberal orthodoxies, from dogma about free markets repairing all the wrongs in the world. And many are concluding that this is, as it were, a purely ideological phenomenon. It's just that the Tories have unleashed their student radicals. And these plans do have something of the air of pints after the Von Misses Club uh, at the university. But I think it's important to remember that for the Tories, the most successful political party in history, everything is always strategic. This plan to increase growth, I think, is calculated for short-term effect. Basically, the Tories want to boost growth for the next couple of years ahead of the next general election. I think it's fair to say that it lacks a longer-term prospectus. The sheer scale of state intervention... £150 billion to engage the myriad economic crises that people are facing up and down the country means that there probably will be some growth. As The Economist Economist James Meadway writes in the New Left Review sidecar blog, the family resemblance is not so much to Thatcherism, with its rhetorical commitments to sound money and balanced books, but to Reaganomics, with the US deficit under President Reagan ballooning to unprecedented levels, thanks to tax cuts for the rich and vast increases in military spending. Truss has promised to increase UK military spending to 3% of GDP by 2030, at an estimated cost of £157 billion. This huge splurge in spending, coupled with significant tax cuts at the top of society, implies to me that Truss and co are preparing for a major attack on those parts of the working class who have resisted in recent months. Increased growth might provide cover for such an operation, while at the same time ensuring allegiance from the leaders of British industry, and perhaps some further down the chain. But the majority of the British working class are very likely to see a major redistribution of wealth from themselves to the wealthiest, the third such redistribution since 2008. I think Truss is creating some problems for herself, and there have been noises in the Tory party suggestive of the faction fights to come, with two institutions I think in particular. The first being the Treasury, which still maintains the Cameronite dogma of balanced budgets, of reducing the deficit in order to shore up British capitalism's position on the world market. The second factional dispute which is already emerging is between the government and the Bank of England. It's come to something when it was a Labour administration who introduced Bank of England independence in the late 1990s, 
and it may be the Conservative Party which acts to undermine that independence in order to pursue its new policies. And while I think there is a strategic logic to what the government is doing, I also do think this looks like the Tories have run out of ideas. In 2019, I really felt that the UK Tory party was on to a winner. Boris Johnson had crushed the Labour Party, invaded the so-called Red Wall, established a new cross-class voter basis. He had, of course, flushed all his own factional rivals out of the party, marginalised all dissent. You could really believe at that point that the 2020s belonged to the Tories. And at the heart of that victory was something of a vision for how to renovate British capitalism. However incomplete ideas about so-called levelling up were, and no matter how poorly pursued they were, and by such a bumbling incompetent, it did look as though the Tories were leaving some of their most dogmatic propositions behind, earnestly seeking to heal some of the maladies of British capitalism with some strategic statism. So this massive U-turn by the new Tory administration, and by an administration that claims, incidentally, that it's the legitimate heir to the Johnson period, does suggest some confusion. And I think part of the explanation for this may be, quite simply, that though a strike movement has recovered the trade unions to an extent in recent months, class struggle within the British state remains at historically low levels. I think it's worth remembering that the last two times that the global capitalist system successfully reorganised itself, it was in the teeth of the opposition of powerful workers' movements. Both the so-called post-war consensus, the construction of the so-called Bretton Woods settlement, and the quarter century of economic expansion after the Second World War, and the neoliberal counter-offensive from the late 1970s, were conditioned by the need to put working-class movements back in their box. I wonder if Without the creative destruction demanded by the class struggle, it's very easy for the establishment to reorientate itself against the economic illnesses which they can only really blame on themselves. We'll have to wait and see if any fruits emerge from Truss's libertarian garden, but I will say that I think there's one area that doesn't pose serious strategic problems for Truss and our crew, and that's Scotland. There have been many in the right-wing press already suggesting that Truss and our Chancellor have put the cat amongst the pigeons in Scotland and that Scots will flee high-tax Scotland down south, creating an embarrassment for the Scottish Government. I think that's a ludicrous claim for two reasons. There is no populist anti-tax mood in the UK. There's no UK Tea Party. Anti-tax mood is quite inarticulate in Britain. It's certainly not driving migration. The second reason is that the SNP love this sort of thing. Here they are, with what they say they like, a hard-right Tory government against which to counterpoise themselves as the centre-left defenders of Scotland. This stuff is jelly and ice cream for the SNP, and I'm sure they're going to make the most of it. I'm sure they're going to use all of the comedic farces emanating from Westminster to cover over their own failures in Scotland, just as they have done for the last 15 years. But here's the thing. Trust doesn't really need to think strategically about Scotland, because Sturgeon and Co. have spiked the indie movement's guns. Within minutes of Quarteng's announcements in the House of Commons, sterling, once considered a buoyant currency, plummeted. The markets announced that they had little faith 
in the UK government's plans, which should have been a great opportunity for the SNP to point out that Westminster does not represent stability and that the claims for an independent Scotland's collapse without the ancient institutions of the British state were a bad joke. But of course, Sturgeon can't say that because she intends to use Stirling after independence. Not only that, she doesn't intend to use Stirling the way the British government uses it. She intends to use it without any recourse to monetary policy. She intends for Scotland's currency to be governed by a foreign institution. A foreign institution presiding over an increasingly unstable currency. Where are the SNP on all these arguments? Where are the SNP full stop? Do you remember during the summer, we were assured that a new independence case was on its way. A new series of white papers updating us all ahead of a supposed referendum little over a year from now. The eventual product was two reports which were almost laughably backward in their economic proposals. Neither of them mentioned the currency that Scotland would use, so we can still assume that it is Stalin. But since those two reports, there's been nothing. There's been complete silence. Now, if you were in the independence movement, let me ask you this. Do you remember September 2013? Do you remember what you were doing? I can tell you what I was doing. I was out and about chapping doors, helping to organise conferences, handing out leaflets, building up databases, making the arguments, attending debates on university campuses and community halls and miners' welfare clubs. I wasn't sitting here listening to the sound of silence from the Scottish government on the question of independence. But the truth is, of course, as we all now know, there will not be an independence referendum next year. And that's why I suspect Truss is unabashed about the distinction between her tax regime and the one up north. She doesn't expect the SNP to do anything meaningful as the Tory party continues its aggressive march to the right. <laughs>